Welcome back to the Ask Different Podcast. This is episode number 19, recorded December 10th, 2011. I'm Kyle Cronin. I'm Jason Salas. I'm Nathan Greenstein. And I'm Mike Bradshaw. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. So yesterday, Apple unveiled a a new Apple store in Grand Central uh, Terminal. A lot of people call it Grand Central Station. I like to do that when I'm not on a podcast, but it's Grand Central Terminal. Did you guys see the pictures for that on on the uh, Ask Different blog? Mm-hmm. Looks insane. I know. Quite a bit different from the standard look of every other, you know, the kind of steel, grayish, brushed, silverish theme that Apple uses almost everywhere besides the uh, the big glass cube. The store just looks fabulous. I, I can't imagine being in it, though, with... Uh all that marble and the the different lighting uh, different lighting effects than the normal stores. It's also weird that it's out in the open that w- what separates the store from the rest of the terminal is just a set of stairs. But it's it's they basically sh- share the same um ceiling area uh which is interesting. Uh I know Apple likes to do that with like their cubes and stuff to have a very big open space and and their new well what was their new New York City store? I don't even remember what it's called, but it, it's it's very open. But you really get a sense of you know you're in the store versus you're not in the store. Whereas with this, it's just a higher level on in the same terminal. And so, uh, because Stack Exchange is based in New York City, some of the Chaos team members went out to check out the launch and to promote Ask Different. As we mentioned before, uh, Sam Brand, one of the Chaos members, went and he posted on the Ask Different blog his story about converting from an Android phone to an iPhone and about it, the whole launch event, which is which is a good read. So we'll put a link in our show notes. Although if you find our show notes, the Grand Central store uh, story will be right below it. So <laughs> it's you don't have to go far. The little the little endpoint about the other employee that I, I am assuming I'm assuming he basically like opened his pocket and then pulled out a droid that was nuzzled in there is kind of kind of funny to me, kind of silly to me. I actually kind of wonder about that because he got the name of the employee. Not that we should expect employees to be you know completely devout to their employer. I remember a Microsoft individual who will remain nameless that was talking about how some of the meetings they had that the the people that were you know dedicated to Microsoft would be very very firm that all employees should only have zunes which at the time were really the only mobile product that microsoft had outside of their classic tablets and windows ce devices mike um what would happen if an employee pulled out a droid in the, in the store while while on duty <laughs> yeah um it's uh it, it it's a good question because um you do want to represent the the store brand but also it's a it's a lot of personal choice so uh, i think it was a good article i mean it was like not everybody uses all the products especially with uh with mobile phones you know when you're you're tied under a contract and may or may not uh want to just uh switch right away i would almost think that uh as a matter of um getting their employees to be more comfortable with the products that they're selling that they should almost just give every single employee an iphone or something oh, i'm sure that would be very popular with the uh, <laughs> with the employees well not, not not like give give but like a like a company phone like you know as long as you're working here you get to use this phone mm-hmm. yeah i think that'd be a good idea i think the other answer is at least in the store if for the vast majority of Apple stores I've ever been into and seen, they don't really have downtime to be able to pull any other kind of a device out of their pockets besides the 
the issued uh, iPad if they're doing scheduling or the iPods if they're doing uh, sales. Yeah, that's a really good point because uh, they've all either got a, an iPod Touch with a scanner attached or a uh, an iPad, you know, with them at all times in the store. Yeah, we should say um, that uh, Mike, in addition to being the top user on Ask Different, uh, also used to work uh, in an Apple store. So you kind of have uh, the inside track a little bit on some of Apple's uh, retail stuff. Not that not that we're going to ask you to reveal any classified information, <laughs> but you can certainly give us the perspective from the other side of uh, the conversation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, um, I did work in the, the retail se- segment of uh, Apple for uh, four and a half years, and it was uh, just a fabulous experience. Did you use those old uh, Windows CE handheld oh, devices? God. <laughs> absolutely absolutely i was there for that uh that transition from a kind of uh custom built hardware to using the ios devices and uh the uh the apple products sure work well yeah it's kind of funny to think about that transition in general because you know i've i've been going to an apple store for about the same time that mike said that he was working there obviously different states but that's neither here nor there the original it was it was so future feeling to have a, a merchant end that would email you a receipt you know that that was the best part about the entire system and then when square was debuted and apple was talking about changing up their point of sale system to something based off ios it was it was all of the best features of the system that they used previously but now it looked good <laughs> and it was fast and all of that extraneous cruft that traditional point of sales needed just gone you know, they they take your card, they optionally tap in a couple of things like discount and anything like that. Um, I, I forgot the scanning process, of course, but, you know, scan each item, make any changes to discounts or any modifications that need to be made. Swipe your card. The fingers, the finger signature is still a little bit awkward to me, but otherwise it's done. It's so fast. Have you guys ever tried to pay with cash at an Apple store? Nope. I have. I, uh, <laughs> it's... It's actually kind of a funny experience just because you're you're used to everything being so seamless and so fast. But I bought like a $10 screen protector and I had like, I guess it was like nine fifty or something and I had a $10 bill. And the poor uh, associate who was checking me out had to scurry between tables looking for, they, they've got little uh, drawers that pull out of the display tables that have cash in them. So they were. She, she had to scramble around between tables trying to find something that actually had coins in it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. You hand it to them, and they almost give you a look like, "What is this thing you just handed me? <laughs> Why would you I do that? I've seen one of these before. <laughs> There's no RFID chip in here. What do I do with this? <laughs> have uh, Have any of you guys used the uh, the new Apple Store app? Oh, I really wanted to. N- not to the extent that you're actually asking. Oh, it it just it feels so weird to just walk in the store reach up on the wall for the cord or the accessory you need, whip out your iPhone or your iPod touch and scan it. It's just, it, it feels really weird to just, you know, yeah, I paid for this. You know, you want to go find somebody and say, I'm not, I'm not stealing this. So that's what I've been wondering about. How do they handle theft? How do they actually know? You know, that, that change obviously came out after I stopped working for Apple, but it seems to be a, um, you know, we, we expect the vast majority of our customers to be honest and, and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And in the past, it was a little honor system based, but they had the blue thank you stickers that they put on the on the box. So at least they know that somebody gave you a sticker so that you paid. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, you don't get any kind of a sticker for the self-checkout. <laughs> there's there's no printers built into iOS devices. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Maybe it could show a, 
a picture of a sticker on the phone and you just wave it at the, <laughs> the guy at the door. That's actually a pretty cute idea. I guess there was nothing to stop people from stealing stuff before, but now, like literally, you just you're you're expected to walk out without ever interacting with an employee, which is which is weird. Although I have to say that in the past, when I was when I wasn't actually buying anything, employees left and right, oh, do you need any help? Can I help you with anything? As soon as I actually had something to buy, I could not find someone to take my money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> John Syracuse, I mentioned this, it, it must be something something different between East Coasters and West Coasters because uh, being on the East Coast, just give me a line and I will stand at it and, and everything's good. But if I'm expected to just mull around and see if I can find someone to take my money, that's a very stressful experience. And I think that that had been one of the biggest negatives about buying something from an Apple store. So I'm glad that they're changing that up. The the one thing that, you know, always strikes me is, you know, whenever I'm walking into an Apple store, especially as a customer, the, the busyness of the store can vary radically. I mean, there's times when it's quite dead and, you know, you might have two or three people to help you. And there's other times, you know, launch day or holiday season where, you know, I mean, it is wall to wall people in a large city and you literally have you're impeded from getting to the section of the store that you actually want to because it's full of people. Right. Yeah, the uh, the Seattle store, it's it's a f- pretty small store. I guess it's average, but nothing compared to like the Grand Central one. But anyway, they they did a remodel probably three ish years ago, and they actually made it bigger somehow. I guess they just were more efficient, but because it's the same building. But anyway, um, at the very beginning, I was really nervous about the remodel because you went in and it was packed. There were so many people in a small store and they had plenty of staff to handle it. It was just the hard to hear and hard to move part, but it it thinned out. And I really actually am pretty consistently impressed with how they handle having, you know, limited staff and being able to scale so well for how many people come in, you know, even if it's, unless it's an iPhone launch or something, then it's ridiculous. But just day to day, it's, they, they really do an impressive job for, for having the same amount of staff. Yeah, don't don't get me started on iPhone launches. Um, <laughs> I actually tried to get an iPhone launch day without a pre-order for the iPhone 4. Uh, I waited in line for like six hours. The line didn't even move. And I just ended up just going into the store just to play with the, the display models that they had uh, and then leaving empty-handed. Uh, and then I bought one two days later, a Radio Shack. <laughs> no line, no wait, no nothing. But I, I found it extremely frustrating because you just know that they could have moved those people faster. You know that if they really wanted to, they could get someone paying for an iPhone, setting it up, getting them out the door in like three or four minutes. But I hated the fact that it wasn't just about buying the phone. It was about talking with the customers and and building up a rapport and let's transfer everything from your old phone and it was just like well that's great if you're the guy who's getting a phone it is it is well it's great if you're the guy that was first in line at 3 a.m or whatever (laughs) but you know if you're i i I will take very brief curt service if it means i don't have to stay in line for eight hours you know (laughs) like if i I'm fine. Yeah, if I was a regular customer, I'd be fine just you know getting the phone. And then like if I had problems, coming back another day. But to make everyone else wait was extremely frustrating to me. And I realized that obviously Apple loves to make people wait because they they get the the press pictures of all the people waiting in line for their iPhone. But uh, it's something that 
I dislike so much that I will never do it again. I would probably sooner just uh, pre-order it and have it uh, shipped as opposed to having to stand in line because it's so bad. That's what I did for the 4S, and it was fine. I just got home from school. Hey, here's an iPhone to play with. And there was, you know, it's as soon as I w- it's probably sooner than I would have been able to get it if I was going to a store on launch day because, you know, it would have been the same thing, go after school, and there would have been a big line. So really, yeah. I think that's the way to go, the mail order. Which which phone launch was was that where the the line was just really really long and not moving? Uh, the iPhone four. Got it. Kind of looking back historically for like the first launch, there really wasn't much that happened. Right, you bought the phone and you walked out. It, it you know they opened the box or something like that. Right. And e- each launch since then, it's like oh we can we can help you transfer your contacts from the SIM card and then oh we can help you transfer your contacts and let's try to like make sure like something works like the app store. And it just, it seems like every, every launch, the amount of time spent setting up the device becomes longer and longer and longer. So, you know, for people like you that would like to get in and out, I think that's the obvious downside. Honestly, I would, I would even take just, just getting the, the, the iPhone in an unopened box, especially now since iOS five can activate it on the device itself, just, you know, Mm -hmm. buy the phone, take the device and I will just do whatever myself. In fact, I really dislike when they, you know, <laughs> they take this pristine iPhone out of the case, they rip off all the plastic and manhandle it right in front of you. Like, That's oh, no. my brand new phone. Oh, oh no, that would be that would be terrible. <laughs> oh. yeah. I bet Apple store employees are better about that, but you know, you go to your random Best Buy or Verizon store, AT&T store, whatever, they just they don't care. They just <laughs> mm-hmm. the change in the new app which I, I can't wait to try to buy kind of like a big ticket item. It asks you, would you like to pick this up in the store or would you like it shipped to you? You know, so I guess theoretically going forward, if there were like a launch day, you could choose to have the device shipped to your house and skip the line. Right. I also like, um, supposedly, if you buy a big ticket item and you say you're going to pick it up in the store, I think you select the day you're going to pick it up or something. And... I think if they have it in stock, it has to be ready within, it was a very precise time. I was like 12 minutes or something, right? Oh yeah. There's definitely, um, what was it? A couple, couple blogs said that they had the guidelines for how the service is supposed to run. And it, yeah, it was a very aggressive amount of time to yeah. have the order ready and no waiting either. And how they're supposed to know when you enter the store or something. I don't even know how they do that based on your, on your phone or something. Well, yeah, that that's all in the, the app store app. So you've got this iOS app. And it pretty much can detect that some of the Apple Store base stations are in range. And it says, you you are within range of so-and-so Apple Store. Would you like to get help? You know, And you can actually see on your phone the, uh, the status, how many people are waiting for a, a specialist, how many people are waiting for the Genius Bar, five-minute right. wait or whatever. And um, that's when it would hook up your order and, and uh, presumably just tell you, find somebody and ask for your delivery. Yeah, that would be cool. I haven't had a chance to buy any uh, big ticket Apple items since then, but uh, next time I do, I, I will try that out. But probably w- won't be for a while. <laughs> it's not the season to be buying things for yourself, Kyle. True, true. Uh, so you need to make the excuse that it's for somebody else. That's right. You can always say, well, I bought this for you, but I'm going to come over and play with it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, someone mentioned the uh, emailed receipts. Um, I don't know if they fixed this, but there was one. There, there have been several times when I've gone to the store, uh, bought something, and then I'd be like, okay, can I get the receipt email? And they're like, oh, I already printed it. 
And I'm like, okay, can you just email? They're like, ah, sorry. Once I print it, I can't email it, which seems like a strange limitation, but maybe just a privacy thing. I don't know. I don't know, honestly, but I think that they should always ask. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or there should be some sort of option on my account that says, you know, cause I, you know, you give them your email address or whatever anyway, as part of the transaction, there should be something on my account that says always email this person, the receipt, don't ever print it. And then it just automatically emails it without even uh, requiring them to ask. I don't know. Uh, it just seems like something that maybe they could uh, improve. But by and large, I do like Apple stores. They are fun to go to. I like playing around with the latest stuff when it comes out. So you guys see those, uh, the, the, the Twitter changed their iOS app? The great cries of why did you change things occurring all over again. It's like, yeah. like Facebook changes their website. Well, yes and no. I mean, I can I can definitely sympathize and empathize with the, the people that were complaining about the Twitter changes because... Uh, it definitely seems to be a shift away from intrapersonal communication to more about joining the conversation. You know what I mean? Uh, they're they're definitely putting a greater emphasis on using hashtags and, and, and hashtag searches and, and trending topics. I've never used Twitter for that purpose, but they, they seem to really be pushing that. And it's not hard to see why. It's very hard to sell an ad to, to, to sell ads and say, well, we're going to show this to 10 people. But you can say, well, we have a trending topic that's Super Bowl. So if you want to show, if you want to show ads for a Super Bowl, we can just show that uh, for anyone that's uh, participating in the Super Bowl conversation or the, that are, that, that's tweeting on the, the Super Bowl trending topic hashtag or whatever. But I think that it's, it's a feature that is not so much designed to improve the user experience but it's 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 created specifically for monetization purposes. Well, they gotta find them somehow. The the the, the great question: How does Twitter get its money? It, it's hard for me to really say anything specific because I rarely use the Twitter website. Usually, usually if I'm out somewhere and need to look something up, and I, I, for some strange reason I don't have any 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 access to my normal Twitter clients. But I use Rin on the desktop that we spoke about previously to just fire something off when I'm using a computer. And then obviously the iOS devices all have their plethora of apps and my personal preference is Echo Phone because multiple multiple clients, multiple apps can be synced together both for uh, red status, message red status and, and whatnot and the fact that global push notifications are really handy. Uh, but just based off something that you said right now, I'm kind of fine with Twitter trying to move away from the conversation because conversing on Twitter kind of sucks. Well, I'm I'm saying that they're pushing for a more global conversation. Yeah, they're they're, pu- they're they're pushing for everybody to kind of push out their specific their specific ideas of exactly as you said what whatever's on their mind or the trending topics that inspired them, like the famous last words or there's I know there's been that's what she said and all the other kind of things that. They replace those words in a sentence with a hashtag. Right. But whenever whenever I'm actually conversing with somebody and replying back and forth, I think it's mostly because anything like that, because you have to attribute it to someone, sends a notification, and it's kind of antagonistic to be sitting there talking to somebody and anything else chirping that, hey, this person's referencing you. Well, no kidding. I'm talking to them. It's just – it's a bad mechanism for it. So something something that emphasizes the update and the broadcast aspect of it is fine with me personally. Yeah, so it's it's sort of moving away from you telling something to your followers to you 
telling people that are following this specific hashtag or that are following this trending topic. Yeah, That's kind of the implementation that things like StatusNet have done with groups where because a hashtag is just a loose-knit association with a group, you say, hey, this may be relevant to all of you. May A little bit of redundant implementation there, but it exists. Yeah, but it's the 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 new Twitter app has a few other visual changes as well. Like the, the the tweet listing is now narrower and uses a smaller font, and there are various visual bugs. And just in general, I, I think that it's again someone has had observed that it appears that Twitter is trying to unify the Twitter interface across multiple platforms. That the Twitter for Android is very very close if not identical to the new twitter for ios where previously twitter for ios used a lot of ios paradigms and twitter for android used a lot of android paradigms owing partially due to their origins as applications for those specific platform platforms that twitter bought but personally i i wasn't too thrilled with that and I started looking around at other Twitter apps that maybe I had I had tried out, but I dismissed. And I actually uh, tried out TweetBot again. Now, when I initially bought TweetBot, one of the problems that I had with it was there were no real-time push notifications. Uh, you could only get that on the uh, original official Twitter app. Well, apparently Twitter, over the summer sometime, Twitter released an API that enables push notifications on on other on third-party apps like like Tweetbot, so once I saw that, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to use Tweetbot from now on, and it's been great. So, uh, what what Twitter apps do you guys use? Um, I'm kind of a, a long-time Twitterific fan. When Tweety came out, I absolutely loved it, but I'm kind of totally out of the official Twitter app since uh, since the Tweety days. Tweetbot's really nice as well. Um, it's a little. Uh, the, the UI, the graphics are just a little stylized, a little too harsh for my eyes. But um, I'm really kind of interested what the official Twitter app is making easier. Is it more of a normalization with the rest of the clients? Or are they trying to actually make something easier or better on iOS? Well, people are sort of saying that, that Twitter is trying to make it easier for new users uh, at the expense of taking out some of the more power user functions. Things like direct messages are now buried in multiple menus, mm-hmm. uh, and, thing, and, and 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 information like people are now following you and have added you to lists and stuff. I believe is now unified in a uh, I don't even remember what the what the section is called, but it, there is a section now that contains all of your at replies as well as indications that people are are now following you. It's a timeline. It's a it's a stream of action specific to you. Right. I just don't know. I don't remember what it's called, but yeah, they have that. But yeah, it's um, other than that, it seems to be a largely cosmetic change and not really in a good way. That's a rough change, you know, because anytime you have software and you've been doing one thing for the same way, when, whenever you change anything, I mean, people are rightly, rightly quite agitated that, that uh, you've moved something that they depend upon if there's not a really good reason to move it. Right, right. And it's also a, a big failing of iOS that it makes it extremely hard to keep older versions of apps. Basically, if you want to keep an older version of an app that has an update, you no longer can use update all. You have to update all the apps individually. And if one day you suddenly go into the app store, you have like 30 updates, you're like, fine, I'll just update all. I'll just take my lumps. And then you're stuck with the new version that you don't want. 
So I think that that's, that's also, you know, you can fault Twitter for changing their app, but you can also fault uh, the, the limitations of the iOS platform for uh, not allowing people to easily keep the old version. Completely different debate, but in theory, older versions are uh, have bugs, unstable uh, instabilities and whatnot. But that's a completely different conversation. I use Twitter almost exclusively read-only. I follow people who I think are interesting or funny, whatever, but I don't post a lot myself just because I don't think I'm, I don't have interesting things to say. So I, I was, I guess, I guess from you guys who, who all use Twitter in both directions, what, what app would you recommend for somebody who just likes to read? I would almost say something like TweetDeck or something that supports the ability to really separate out what you want to read. Uh, I've had a, I've had an idea kind of running around that lists are, one of the best things to implement and nobody but TweetDeck, in my opinion, that, that I've used have actually gotten them right. And that way you can you can make your lists of categories and you can choose what you want to read instead of just being subject to the, the chronological order of the timeline. I have not used... Does, is there an iOS version of TweetDeck? I seem to remember there was some time ago. I, yeah. I'm pretty sure I installed it at one time. The problem I'm having with the desktop version is that it just automatically keeps scrolling to the top of the list. It's a, it's expected that you would keep this open and then either constantly watch it or glance at it at occasion to see what's what's posted now. But I guess the way I use again the way I use Twitter is sort of contrary to the way that they want you to use Twitter in that I I only follow people that I really want to read every single tweet. Uh, and so what I want to do is I want to make sure that I'm not missing any. And I find that TweetDeck and even the, the official Twitter clients, they don't provide any sort of synchronization of where you are in in the list. They don't provide, uh, well, TweetDeck doesn't really provide the ability to stay where you are in the, in the scroll. At least I didn't see any. So you constantly have to be checking to see if there's anything new. Uh, otherwise, you'll miss stuff. There is a service called TweetMarker that's supported by a various number of Twitter clients Tweetbot is one of them. Twitterific on all the platforms is is another uh, that will synchronize where you are in the, the list of tweets between your devices, so you can pick up and, and read a few tweets on one and then switch to the other. And in theory, well, that's cool. If that works. That would be great. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up uh, TweetMarker. Manton Reese provides that uh, web service um, for free, and uh, it is just fabulous, especially in the use case that. You mentioned, um, you know, someone that's just reading because, you know, if you're reading a bunch of tweets and you're not really tweeting much yourself, you know, you're not going to want to tomorrow not be able to go back to right where you were reading and, and maintain that position in your list of your feed. So TweetMarker really uh, has just made uh, reading tweets much more enjoyable for me. And the other alternative entirely is just to subscribe to certain to things that you absolutely want to read via RSS and just delegate that to a newsreader, which does this admirably well i i don't really follow news or anything on twitter i do that separately in reader but for people who i think are funny or interesting or relevant or a lot of i follow a lot of developers just to that's one way of keeping up on stuff that isn't really news but that is like you know the new draft of css three point whatever it lets you do this and this and so that's something that really wouldn't show up in my news stuff but that would show up in some of the people i follow on twitter Twitter to me is just a glorified syndication reader. Delegate that out to an actual one, and you have a lot of the features that we've just covered in the last five minutes. Although a lot of RSS readers don't support lots of very, very short articles well, it's, it's sort of expected that you have a few, or 
uh, uh, certainly not the, the to the volume of, that you'd have a, of tweets articles and then for each of those you go into a separate screen and then you read the entire article yeah um, it is so, it is an it is a, it's an argument of scale as well absolutely right and also i thought maybe i'm just going crazy but i thought that twitter deprecated their rss feeds it's it's still retrievable via the the APIs. There's if you if you basically just search for you know a Twitter RSS feed, it's buried in their API documents, and it's going to it's going to remain there. It, and thankfully, it's also read only. You don't you don't have to have a token or sign up or any other nonsense run around just to be able to export an RSS formatted version of a tweet stream. I almost think that uh, Twitter is is so central to a lot of internet communication that it's unfortunate that it's controlled by a single single company uh, that unfortunately, again, has to act like a company and has to make money. And that it's not a more distributed service like email where, you know, instead of your signal sign-on name, you would have, you know, your 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 username at server, something like, like XMPP where you are able to in real time distribute messages across a distributed kind of system this was a goal of diaspora and the other answer twitter specific status.net well i (laughs) i'm saying that it's it's more than just the technology there has to be enough traction for it to be viable either that or there has to be a really really good interface to the actual Twitter service, bi-directional. So, you know, you can post something on your crazy distributed system and then for people that don't care about that, they can just follow you on a regular Twitter handle. But yeah, it's, 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 it is annoying that there is more and more of the internet that's going to be locked into these walled gardens, whether it be Twitter, whether it be Facebook, whether it be Google Plus or whatever, that it's no longer about protocols and, 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 and openness, and it's more about these companies hoarding as much uh, control and information as they can and then desperately trying to squeeze money out of the people that are stuck in there. As much monetize, monetizable information they can get on their users. Right. So I know it's kind of old news now, but have you, you, have you guys had a chance to check out iTunes Match? Mm-hmm. Is that a yes, Jason? That is an absolute yes. What do you think of it? Um, the, the biggest downside, no, the biggest craziness of iTunes match is after you enable it, you lose the ability to, to sync and mass things off of your library. But if that isn't as big a deal, then the ability to just say, oh, hey, this isn't in my library, hit it. And less than a minute later, you have it is unexplainable and shouldn't have to be, but we're about to anyways. iTunes match is it's like the, the biggest culmination of any kind of a library, of any kind of a store that you've ever seen. Uh, because the ability for it to upgrade your poor quality, within reason, your lower quality rips that you've had of your CDs for 10 years, and the ability to fill the gaps in your library by uploading the things that aren't in the catalog is... I, I, I don't, I'm not even sure how to say it. It's just one of the smartest two-facet ideas that I've ever seen out of any kind of a storage service company ever. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really very, very good. I, I like it as well. You know, honestly, I'm not, I'm not super crazy about the whole upgrade aspect. I mean, it's nice, but for me, what I really like is that I can have my entire iTunes library on my MacBook Pro, on my MacBook, and on my iPhone. And I don't have to decide, well... 
you know, am I going to sync these songs over and, and for, for my, uh, for my MacBook, you know, well, I have my, my master library on my MacBook pro, but then I have to use iTunes streaming to get it on my MacBook, but then I have to be on the same network and it just removes all of that. I just sign into my account on these separate devices and I see my entire library. If I, there's something I want to play, I just tap on it or on my, on my iPhone or I double click on it on one of my MacBooks and it just starts playing. And that's amazing to me. And the other aspect is the fact that I have a lot of stuff in my library that I don't necessarily listen to a whole lot, but I don't want to get rid of because I don't know, I might want to listen to it someday. So what iTunes Match has enabled me to do is I just created a smart playlist that was plays less than five and it was matched and it, the place was on my computer. And I, there was like 40 gigabytes of songs that were that way. And I just selected them all. I just deleted them from my computer. That's that's 40 gigs I now have on my on my computer. Your little constrained SSD. Exactly. It's just amazing. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty gutsy. That's a pretty gutsy move. Deleting all that music. Did you make a backup first, or did you just jump for it? Oh, I just jumped for it. Um, oh, wow, <laughs> <laughs> that's I, that's amazing. Well, I actually I do I do have a time machine backup, so I guess if 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 worse comes to worse, I could always just restore from the time machine backup. But it it works great. If they, I mean, if I want to play one of those songs, I just double click it, and it takes a few seconds to uh, start streaming. But once it starts streaming, it just starts playing automatically. It's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Generally, generally the service, no complaints whatsoever. The devil's in the details like always. And there's a couple of things. If your internet is spotty or there's actually a, there's a very obnoxious blackout uh, dead zone spot just outside of my house. So whenever I, I pretty much can't do anything with my phone for the first two minutes of the car ride because it will drop. You know, da- data will constrain down to nothing. Calls will die. Um, but as soon as I get pretty much on the highway, which isn't much further then I do whatever I want and it's not a problem when I'm not driving, of course, I swear. But just one, one of the quick little stories is that we were running around town and we stopped by a couple stores, none of which had their own Wi-Fi in house. And so I could kind of sort of get a signal from something that's just on the other side of a wall, but it was so spotty that the download would just not, it, it wouldn't make it anywhere in a timely fashion. And this was your, this was your iPad. So you didn't have yeah, 3G, right? This is exactly. Okay. Thank you. This was, this was on my iPad. So I didn't have any cellular service to kind of somewhat more consistently move things along. And I really wanted to use it to listen to something on the way home. We have a, we have a, a line jack, a, uh, eighth inch jack in our car that we can plug any device into to listen via the stereo. So we go to these stores and things aren't terribly good. The last store that we go to is a Best Buy. Well, I haven't been to a Best Buy that doesn't have a at least reasonable internet connection and good wireless connectivity. Hit the song, hit the song to download because I wasn't uh, just to download, not to listen to, and it was done. You know, a nice nine minute song was done in about twenty seconds. And it was something I had just put in my library. I hadn't synced for whatever reason at the time. And the ability to just grab it and go was, it was a, it, it was a very good first experience because that actually happened the day that iTunes Match came out. So you guys are talking about how great streaming is and only 20 seconds delay, but I use Spotify pretty much exclusively since I don't have, I didn't have any music that Spotify doesn't have. And I didn't have very much at all, so Spotify is really the only smart solution for me since I save a whole lot of money <laughs> using that. And 
since that it's true streaming, not download and then play, it is instant. Like it is as fast as having a file locally on on the iOS app or the desktop app or whatever. So you play the song, and even if you don't have it locally, it's instant. Well, when you say when you say instant, instant, I mean like as soon as your finger comes off the button, the song is playing if you're on a decent connection. Okay, and even if it's, it's not too bad, you know, even if it's on three G. Maybe there is a one second delay, but it literally is one second until it starts playing. Yeah, on on um, on my home connection is usually maybe like a second in iTunes, and over three G, it takes maybe a few seconds to start. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's one of those one time things. Like iTunes is smart enough that when as you're playing a song, it starts downloading the next one, so that there's no uh, waiting. Yeah, so. that Spotify does the same. It tries to anticipate and everything. I actually, well, what, well, what, I'm, what I'm basically saying is that you're saving about at most three or four seconds hmm. at, at one time every time you want to start playing some music. That's um, okay. I realized it kind of adds up if if you do that a hundred times. That's four hundred seconds. That's uh, six minutes. But yeah, I get, I get what you mean, but I. I guess what I'm, I don't understand why it doesn't let you either give you two choices, stream a song or download it or do both. Like just start streaming so that you can listen to it and then download as you go and keep a separate copy. But you know, everything with, with Pandora and any other internet music service and Spotify, it it just kind of shows that you don't really need to have that kind of a delay. And I'm not really sure, like Jason, you were talking about your iPad 20 seconds that it would, you know, there, there should be no difference between songs because it can just download the first 10 seconds and start playing. Well, uh, to be honest, what I think is probably happening is Spotify is not sending you a 256 kilobit AAC file. No, it is. Uh, it's, I've got Spotify Premium, so it's all... It's all 256K? Yep. Well, then the, then I guess I stand corrected. <laughs> that your um, argument just went right out the window. You, well, I, actually, if, if you are in an area that has slow connection, you can. there is a setting in the, the mobile app to stream lower quality over cellular, but... It's it is high quality if you want it to be. I guess I just sort of assumed that maybe like the first uh, second or two is like intentionally low bandwidth so that it oh. could start playing immediately. All right, that's entirely possible. I yeah, songs they don't songs don't adapt like that. I I don't think I've ever seen a music service that isn't you know a live a live feed of audio that scales like that. It's just not not prolific in the utilities at least that i've ever seen and it's also very obnoxious because you're listening to the song that gets uh that gets crystal clear and then kind of sort of muddy and back it, i i just haven't seen anything that works that way again that isn't a purely live audio stream the other thing i like about spotify's kind of streaming and local hybrid is that you get i think it's like 3333 songs that you can you that's that's the limit for how many you can put in offline mode and so you can you you basically select what playlists you want to be saved offline that's a strangely arbitrary number yeah i don't really (laughs) they no i don't know anyway it's you know it's it's enough for me that i can get the stuff that i listen to all the time so that that is plenty for for something i'm gonna be listening you know in a given week i'm probably gonna play it that there's plenty plenty of space for that stuff so i actually really like being able to just say i want this playlist offline and i don't want this one and the the syncing is automatic and everything and i kind of i feel like kind of a dashboard would be cool for itunes match where you can monitor what it's downloaded and give you the option to keep it for a certain amount of time or not keep it i i I haven't really thought about this i was just kind of 
feel free to jump in if you guys have. So Nathan, how, how does that um, how does that work? The deep in or dive into the Spotify just a bit more. Oh yeah, sure. You mark some songs or playlists for offline use, and then they're they're somehow queued and, and pushed out to the device. Or how does it work? So on on the desktop app, you mark something as being available offline, and it downloads it to your computer, and then you basically. If you open the Spotify app on your phone on the same uh, Wi-Fi network as your computer, then it'll push everything over Wi-Fi to your phone. Okay, so so there's no data center, but it gets to your computer and then your computer pushes it. Right, and if you oh. and if you are on a different Wi-Fi network or whatever, you can just it'll it'll pull it from its from from its cloud stuff, so you don't have to have you don't have to have a local copy. There's the streaming part, just you know, like Spotify or radio or yeah, exactly. You can. Or whatever. So, so the the stuff you don't have offline, you can always play just by streaming. The stuff that you do have marked as offline, but don't actually have on the device, you can download from any Wi-Fi network. And I guess if you really want, you could do it over cellular, but it, I don't think that would be fun. Yeah, that option is <laughs> off by default anyways. Yeah. It's actually kind of funny because my, from what I remember of Spotify, and again, this is... Uh, I, I've relegated my use of Spotify. I used to use it very actively for local files or whatnot, but between my playlists and notably iTunes DJ, I'm actually pretty much back to iTunes. Um, but what I remember out of Spotify is that its local sync actually takes an absurdly long amount of time. I seem to remember that I hit, um, I went into the starred section of Spotify and I said, make these available offline. And then I starred just a single song, you know, standard, probably four minutes, something in length. And I seem to remember it taking minutes, or at least one. And that's compared to what I said about iTunes Match and a nine-minute song of, you know, absurdly good quality taking less than half a minute. So that was on your computer? That was the yeah, that was, the, I seem to remember computer. this on my desktop. I haven't had experiences like that, but I guess I do it more bulk by playlist, so I've got a playlist with and you, and you just let it run. Songs you and just, just let, let it run go. to completion. Yeah, but I would I would say it probably is one song... 20 or 30 seconds for the stuff I've done. I don't, yeah. that's and it could be better. Scientific. I, mean, I, I did this, I did this a lot towards launch. And so invariably perhaps the load was different, but now that things have evened out or their capacities increased or what have you, things could be different. I just, I seem to remember Spotify taking a lot longer for its offline sync than iTunes match. Hmm. That's and also I Nathan I remember you saying that you save money by going for Spotify. Mm-hmm. Isn't premium ten dollars a month? Oh yeah, so not not compared to iTunes Match, but compared to I mean, okay, so if I were to legitimately buy the music that I listen to regularly, that would be like two hundred dollars on iTunes plus twenty five dollars for iTunes Match, but you know, hundred and twenty bucks a year for Spotify premium. Yeah, so that's it's, it's one of those arguments because Spotify is going to cost more in the long run in a matter of speaking compared to constant album purchases which are you know just a few bucks less digitally than as a raw cd perhaps yeah in well, some the, cases the way i justify it is that i'm not going to slow down finding new music and buying new music so i would yeah. still it would still be 20 albums a year buying on itunes yeah you're not that music is not going to stop being produced you're not going to yeah. stop having new things that you want to try and you're never going to stop going to releases that came out years and years ago already that you may never have known of god knows that's what i've used the majority of spotify for old and new yeah so this sort of itunes match kind of thing where i i was a i was able to both keep my itunes um, music that i don't that i hardly listen to um but at the same time remove it from my hard drive uh sort of gets into um 
I guess you could call me a little bit of a digital pack rat where I like to keep stuff if I can. And if, if, I, if I think that it might have a, any future significance. Are you guys like that at all? I know Jason isn't. He's Jason's like, delete, delete, delete. <laughs> I'd like to think that I'm not, but I just kind of do it in different ways. And I, I have one of, like I said in the last topic, was that I have a lot of old stuff that is just of varying quality and whatnot. I have a very large queue of things that I like media-wise as well, and I would love to transcode and have in a you know a modern situation away from a desktop. My my basically my to be sorted folders, more or less my to be transcoded folders, are a total mess. And that's just because everything I, I don't I don't just want to apply one action across everything. Not to mention with the iPhone fours and ups Retina display and whatnot means that Handbrake has new presets for making your videos look that much better if their source quality is larger than uh, what the original resolution of the iPhone screen was. So staying on the topic of a digital pack rep, but slightly changing gears a little bit. So uh, you guys use Gmail. You, I'm sure all of you use Gmail, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Plenty, do you plenty. delete? Do you delete your email? Yes. I delete stuff that is like sent out. Like, okay, if it's like a newsletter that I don't really care about, like I, I, I have the Onion fake news daily delivered, and I don't feel like I need to archive that. So once I've read it, I delete it because I don't feel like it's something I need to keep or an advertisement from PayPal or Apple or whoever else saying, you know, did you know that you can buy things with PayPal? I delete because it's not something I'm going to want to refer back to. But if it is any, basically any email from anybody who I actually know, I archive. Well, what's the, what's, I mean, most people don't actually go through and manually browse their archives. They just search. So why not just keep everything? I keep everything. Because it's really ugly when you start getting false positives of, hey, here's your account activation email. Click this link. I never care again. And I don't. There have been some instances where search, Google's mail search is kind of bad, and that's probably just because the simplistic use of specific terms can be so vague at times. And so, I can't, unfortunately, I can't even think of a good example. It's basically something along the lines of a lot of web hosts use cPanel, and there was a period of time that I participated on their forum. When I search cPanel, I and it's usually looking for specific account information, cPanel forum account information is not in that list. Uh, there, there's, and I don't want to spend the time of an advanced search. Well, I want to search for cPanel, and I want to search for one of these domains, and I don't want anything from cPanel.net. There are certain, there are certain emails that will never need to be looked back at. Yeah, you, you nailed it for me. I'm a total pack rat, but the moment something gets in my way, right? I can't fit my library onto a new computer, or I'm searching for something, and gosh darn it, these other. 15 hits are there and they shouldn't be there that that's when i'll go and delete two years worth of mail because it just it's in the way and i I don't mean it to derail it but google's google chrome's history search is terrible yeah i'll I'll agree the chrome's history is terrible but i find that the gmail search is actually pretty decent um it's rare that i'm not able to through a series of this and not this and this to nail right down to what i want and for me i mean you have to realize that Making the decision, well, do I archive this? Do I delete this? Do I just leave this in my inbox? If you do that for every single email, that adds up. That's a that's both a cognitive load and it takes time. And for me, what I uh, what I just do is I just keep everything and 
usually I just keep it right in my inbox. I just read it and then I just ignore it from then on unless I need to refer back to it. And then on the occasions when I need to find an email that I received in the past, I just search for it. And I know that because I decided to keep everything because I I did not have to make the decision earlier, well, do I, am I going to keep this or not, that I may have made incorrectly, that the email is there and I can just nail right down to it. So for me, I very much err on the side of just keeping everything, uh, especially if there's no if there's no cost to it. Like for me, I I think I'm using like 25% of my Gmail storage, so I can go another <laughs> what 15 years before I actually have to uh, think about upgrading the storage in my Gmail account. And it's the same for me um, in terms of files on my file system. Honestly, I have tons of tiny little files that I know I don't need anymore, but because they're not taking up that much space, it takes more time and effort for me to identify them and remove them than it would for me to simply continue having them to exist on my hard drive. Except for the fact that it leads to the never-ending issue that your SSD is pretty much completely full. And every well, time true. you need every time you need something significant, you have to spend that time getting rid of these things that you're unsure of. Well, I, I don't get rid of them. I, I admittedly, um, I do use Daisy Disk on a regular basis. I fire up Daisy Disk, see what's taking up the most space, and I'm like, okay, I can get rid of these old Twit podcasts or you know <laughs> stuff like that. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I, with Daisy Disk, I always go to the biggest culprit first because those are the easiest you know you can say well this video that i downloaded that's four gigabytes well obviously once i watch that i may not need that again and it's taking up four gigabytes of space that i can use to store other things it sucks to clean things up out of necessity instead of when you just want to be have a breathing space and I, I, if to, to the best of my recollection, I have made bigger, like before actually having a sane backup solution, I have made bigger mistakes deleting something because I thought I needed the space or because I did need the space than when I'm just deleting things actively because they're really entirely worthless. Admittedly, when you have a process that's constantly writing and taking up hard drive space and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I, I need to continually free up space. That's uh, that. That is a, a bit of a pressure situation that uh, does not result in maybe the optimal solution. But I think that, I, I don't even know how many files I have on my hard drive, probably thousands, tens of thousands of files. If I had to make a decision for every single file, whether or not I want to keep it or not, especially if it's a two kilobyte file that, you know, doesn't even matter. I mean, it's it's all about um, how much it it, it 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 benefits versus how much it costs to to do that kind of management. And for me, the cost benefit analysis it, it comes on the side of I would much rather just keep the cruft as long as it's not taking up a significant amount of space. Significant is relative. Well, it, true. Yes, um, there are, there are there are people like us with professional media that can have ten things that total five gigs, and then there's the bigger nightmare of. 5 million things that take up 1K that take up 5 gigs. I don't even know if that was the correct math, but I'm going with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, five, 5 million, yeah, 5, yeah, something like that. There's, there, there's um, a very big difference with, with the amount of things with, you know, call, call it a different in, difference in upbringing, call it a different things and things that your parents lectured you on, but I have a much bigger problem with small things adding up than I do big things making room for because because smaller things do take that much more time when you really need to go through them but you're you're spending the time anyway jason whether whether or not you spend it up front or 
later. It's the same amount of time, let's except use, that you may not need to do drive. it later. Let's use the hard drive excuse then. It is much easier for a hard drive to have a large stream of a huge file than it is for hundreds of directories with tiny files because of the need to open, stat, close, open, stat, close, open, stat, close repeatedly. And that, that's the same thing with your brain switching gears, especially if the items are disjointed. Small things adding up is a very, very obnoxious thing. I take issue a little bit with your idea that it takes more effort for the computer to store lots of little things versus one big thing. Yes, it does take a marginal amount of more effort, but again, it's not that significant. I mean, we're talking about a little, little more overhead in terms of file metadata um, and, and file system data, uh, but it's almost insignificant. Except when it adds up. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about maybe uh, a few bytes per file, seriously. Multiplied out by many, many files. And Okay, so if you had a million files and each of them stores, say, five or let's, let's say 10 bytes of, 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 uh, of extraneous data, that's 10 megabytes that's not a lot of space and most people don't even have a million files anyway for it's just for me it's it's a cost benefit thing where either you pay the entire cost up front every single time or you pay the cost later but for for at a far fewer amount of times it's just more efficient it's not it is it's not it is it's not wow okay, what a very, what a very intelligent debate Yes, and I could the, resulted to this. The, the, these, the, there's a couple more things to be said, and I really don't no, want to dwell on it. But just you know, speaking speaking of the number of times that you've talked about having to do whatever you can to kind of squeeze that last little bit of space on your SSD prior to iTunes Match, quite admittedly, where you opened up a swath of space. But the number of times that you talk about having to shuffle things around is something that I used to do a lot. And I haven't done in a long time. Do you know what's taking up the space, Jason? It's these podcasts. <laughs> I have to store multiple gigabytes for each podcast. And there's an argument to be made for saving Ross. But yeah, no, I, I, mean, I doubt that's yeah. the first time. I really do. If I had to total about the amount of space that I'm using to store up these uh, these podcasts, I'd say probably it's it's hit like 50 gigs already right now. Including all of the episodes that never made it? Well, yeah, <laughs> but I like to keep those in case we ever want to do a bloopers reel or the best of the B-sides. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, I think we probably spend enough time on this on this individual topic. Clearly, I'm right. Jason <laughs> is obviously wrong. So have you guys heard about this Nest thermometer? Thermostat. Thermostat. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely looks pretty slick i'd hate to think how they would implement something smart like that that would be a thermometer <laughs> well i mean it technically on a at a very technical level it is a thermometer it also happens to be a thermostat as well clearly kyle is right about everything yes i am do not argue with me no um so uh, but it, it's 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 really an interesting device where first off it's designed incredibly well it evokes those uh, those traditional uh, twist dial thermostats. I uh, had one in my house when I was growing up. Um, I'm, I'm sure many people have. I don't know if you guys have. But it was extremely easy to, because on the dial, you had at the top was a little needle indicating the set temperature. 
and on the bottom was a little uh, reading indicating the current temperature. So you could uh, you could see what the temperature was and, and manually adjust it, and it was just very very easy to use. Single dial, and then uh, these uh, these um, because it's so expensive heating your house, a lot of these companies have been coming out with these smarter thermostats, but they're so complicated to use. Seriously, you have to spend half an hour just trying to figure out how to program the thing in order to say, well, you know, on Sundays, I want you to turn it up to 72 degrees at five in the morning, but then I want you to bring it down to 65 degrees at two in the afternoon. It takes so long and it's so... I've got to jump in here. You're being way too kind to these. The user <laughs> interface is abominable. It's like, it's no, no, they're, they're truly terrible. There's, yeah. it's, there's these buttons that you push again and again and again, and they're these chintzy little buttons with a, with a little bit of a plastic spring and a contact. And it's, it's like you're, you're using an abacus or, or, or a hockey stick to do math in the, in the sand. I mean, the user interface of these digital thermometers they're, they're just terrible it's not even it's not even 30 minutes getting used to the interface it's 30 minutes deciding what you which one you need at the store what what are the terms seven seven or five or five plus two or five plus one plus one or there what there's probably even a one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one when your week is just that insane that every day is different schedule wise I, I don't know. Honestly, what what ends up happening is that people get sold on these because they claim to save you money for heating your house. But what ends up happening is that people are so intimidated by them and they hate them so much that they just don't touch them. I mean, they might hit the up-down buttons to adjust the temperature every now and then. But in that case, it ends up acting as a regular thermostat would. And so the genius behind these Nest devices is instead of having to program them, they're designed to learn what you want. So you, you interact with them the, the same as you would interact with those, the, the, the same really basic twist dial thermostat, except that after a while, it starts to remember, okay, well, uh, on, on Sundays, you know, you, you like it a little warmer in the morning or, you know, it's getting to be wintertime out. I guess we have to uh, turn the heat on earlier in the morning. I don't know. But it just, again, it all comes down to how well it does this. But I think that Having a really simple interface is the key to to these these kinds of things, and I think that this this Nest product has the potential to be the beginning of a revolution in home automation systems, where instead of just changing the thermostat, you also have uh, light control, or you have uh, help me out here. <laughs> what open the windows? I don't think people open the windows with home automation. Okay, well, so why not? So <laughs> in the summertime, why not? <laughs> or, or like the shades, like it's you know now it's the the sun's up, so open all the shades on the west side of the house or east. I, see, I guess I the east side. I seem to remember a commercial some time ago about automatically retracting or automatically. I'm not sure what the opposite of retracting is. Automatic, <laughs> automatically retracting and automatic uh, unfolding deck shades. Mm-hmm. And those are, you know, why not? I, I'll go one step further. And this, this is something that's been pretty popular with people that actually implement it. Car doors, car locks, front home front door, and back door and any others that you have. And I would, I, I without, dwell, without dwelling too much on it, I like to know that my front door is locked. And especially with a, with a bedroom on, the different, on a different level of the house, to be able to just look at that without having to come all the way back downstairs at you know, absurd o'clock in the morning, it's, it would be pretty nice. 
that's and, a, and yeah and the more practical walks. the more practical application is the is the the remote start systems and those things that are getting more predominantly cellular driven uh for things there there's android apps iphone apps and everything else for starting your car in advance and getting the heater going in the winter or getting the air conditioner going in the summer uh, mm-hmm. And all, all of those remote technologies that really just let you be a step ahead when the situations merit it. And also sec- security systems as well. Uh, you mentioned door locks, but also security systems. A yeah. lot of people have security systems, but again... Uh, they have a they have a dongle with, that may not even reach outside their front door because their system is installed on the opposite side of the house because that's how the floor plan happened to work out. Right. Or, uh, you know, you want to... Uh, Make sure that well, if I if, if it's ten o'clock on a Monday morning and the security system's not set, but I'm obviously at work, just go ahead and set it anyway. As as long as you're not inside of it, <laughs> true. Which which could be picked up by the fact that you have this device in your pocket. Right, right, yeah. Well, that that that's the the part of uh, home automation I'd love to to see is some geolocation. You know, um, it knows I've left work. Okay, it's time to. Crank the crank the thermometer and get the house warm because I'm leaving work early. Or um, en- enable the lights. Go ahead and turn on the exterior lights because I'm half a mile away in the car. So Nest has an iPhone app and isn't part of iOS five the geofence stuff like they use in Reminders for iPhones only. Yes, for iPhones. So they could, in theory, implement that. There's a point that you made, Kyle, that you haven't actually brought up on this episode yet that you were talking to us before, and that's the fact that. Bringing home automation up from this this homebrew, this mechanical, this roll the whole solution yourself to something pre made that that fills a, a, a huge amount of use cases for people that you know everybody's life is the same. Uh, open open a garage door when you're nearby. Turn on the lights when it's dark outside. If it's dark outside, when you're when you're in the vicinity and heading in the right direction, of course. My, I, I remember that because my mind jumped to something that Brad Fitzpatrick, the founder of LiveJournal, he's talked about uh, so long ago that he actually did everything that I just talked about. Uh, he used a variety of network accessible utilities. I think X10 was the biggest person, the biggest company that he bought from. When he would drive up on his motorcycle, he would launch an app on his phone. I, I couldn't tell you what it was at the time. But he would launch an app on his phone that would basically just ping location every once in a while. And as soon as his any of his wireless base stations picked up that he was outside, it would turn on the lights and raise the garage. And all he would have to do is, is uh, bring his motorcycle up his garage. And everything was just there waiting for him because he was in the vicinity. Right. Well, the point I was trying to make is that this technology exists for people that actually want to invest the time and money and effort into into building it out. But for most people, if you tell them that, well, you know, in order to do this, well, we're going to need to get this X10 network and the Zigbee and the right. <laughs> and you're going to have his, to get these his, Arduino boards. <laughs> his solution, his his solution included something that would basically tap a button on the garage door, probably the you know the the button indoors. And uh, a, a server custom configured to react to the location of his phone, plus the web server that would receive and send the requests. Um, the fact that he does have multiple Wi-Fi base stations in his house uh, to to actually do the the Wi-Fi base triangulation. Yeah, that was that was the point I made and didn't quite make it to the end. He has this amazing setup with stuff that ninety percent of the population. 
I, I don't know, doesn't even know exists, but would never touch with a 10-foot pole. Right. But now that everybody has this phone in their pocket and can install this app that says, I'm, I'm, retrie- I'm, I'm watching your location. When you're home, these actions will happen. Lights on, heater on, or, you know, temperature adjustment and doors, security system disarmed. Maybe not unlocked, because that's, for me personally, that's a bit, that's a step just a bit too far. But to have right. everything else just set up for you so that it's the most comfortable arriving experience. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I, I think probably the next step for Nest, what do you think the next step? I think probably it would be the security system because... Security system know, or lights? Well, with lights, you have to install the infrastructure. But for people that have existing security systems, you could just replace the ugly little security box with a, a beautiful little Nest interface and... You know, you could access it remotely or, or whatever. You know, you could get a push notification when it's going off or something like that. I think lights, while it's a little bit, well, actually, it's not, it's not terribly different. Installing, installing a thermostat is, I, I, don't, I won't say difficult, but, you know, it's, it's hard-ish and you have to know what you're doing because you're dealing with live wires. Installing a thermostat can be a bit difficult and lights are not terribly different. They're actually simpler because it's just, what? two or th- uh, three wires if they if they just make these replacement plates that you just throw in and they're powered systems that are intelligent that's a lot easier to just replace your house with than the fact that they're going to have to deal with all of these different security companies and they're completely disjointed systems i can only imagine how different the security system infrastructures are i can uh, the problem with the lights though is that i mean how many light switches does a typical house have a lot and I can't imagine, you know, them wanting to replace every single light switch with like a $50 or $75 Nest thing. I mean, that's like thousands of dollars. But with a security system, you know, you could just replace the one panel and you would get complete access to the entire security system from there. It would probably be a... Anyway, they're both options that maybe they could go into. Uh, and I, I definitely think that when there are these options available for people that are very, very easy to use that we're going to see more people using them. And once they start being built into new houses. Right. Joke's on us. Nest's next uh, product is going to be a ceiling fan. <laughs> the most beautifully uh, constructed uh, ceiling fan with the beautiful remote and all that. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually not a, not a bad uh, idea. Ceiling fans use, a lot of ceiling fans use like a, a radio remote, you could very easily uh, install something that would c- control a ceiling fan. And you'd get to be able to pick the specific RPM you want to. <laughs> so if you're just not happy with, oh, I couldn't even imagine how fast a fan spins. That's that's not something I want to wrap around right now. Well, Jason, you don't, the thing is you don't think about the RPMs that the fan's spinning. You just have a little analog dial that says, oh, I think the fan's turning too fast. And you just turn it down a little bit and just go slightly slower. You know, that is the control that is that you'd want. But exciting times, definitely exciting times. Obviously, the people that are building new houses get uh, the ability to install much more involved systems than people that have existing houses, unless they want to tear their walls out. But I'm really looking forward to what Nest comes up with in, uh, in the future. So our question of the week this week is... Is there a real benefit to removing applications from the iOS multitasking bar? This was asked by Stefan500, and this was asked yesterday. 
And it goes, sometimes if my iOS device, iPad or iPod Touch, is acting sketchy or slow, I will bring up the multitasking bar, double press the home button, and remove the items from the multitasking bar. Uh, I imagine this is somehow saving memory or freeing up the device somehow. But is that true? In very, very limited situations. Any application can run for... It's either five or ten minutes after being closed. The The principal example of this when it came out was uh, Flickr image uploads that you can start and upload. And if it's particularly big, you walk away. And in theory, by the time the upload is done, the timeout has uh, the timeout is reached and killed Flickr off from doing anything anyways. Processes, if, if you're crazy and geeky and you actually use some kind of an activity monitor application on your iOS device, you will see that applications have a process. But as a result of the iOS infrastructure, unless they're in a specific class of application, they're not doing anything. They're not being given any time or resources to actually run. Um, there are just a few exceptions, and most of these were pointed out in the iOS 4 keynote, I think. Skype can run perpetually. Uh, VoIP, VoIP systems in general can run perpetually because they're registered to take calls. Uh, and as, as an aside, nothing will run at a higher priority than the actual phone aspect of iPhones. Skype and VoIP applications can run perpetually. Audio streaming applications can run as long as they continue to play music. And um, I feel like a, there's a third specific class that I've forgotten. Yeah, there were there were a few. I don't remember exactly what they were. I mean, re- recording, you can record audio. Uh, that's kind of similar to your audio one. Yeah, um, that's true. Like Dropbox and uh, oh, there's, uh, uh, even GarageBand can do it. Uploading. uploading. Uploading technically just falls under the same class as the any app can keep doing it can keep doing anything for five to ten minutes because Instacast, for example, that that will do background downloads for up to five or ten minutes. SSH applications will hold their application can keep their application open for that same five to ten minutes tops. And that, that's 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 the general task timeout. And there's there's only specific exceptions that can go for longer than that. It's funny you say that, and yet I have noticed uh, there's been a noticeable difference uh, for me if I have a if my phone feels kind of sluggish a little bit, uh, feels loaded down. If I go in there and I just remove everything, there is a noticeable improvement. Now I don't know exactly what that's related to, whether or not it's freeing up memory versus freeing up processes. But I remember this example because uh, there there's a, a rock band game for iOS, and I would sometimes I would open it up and it would say you don't have like you're running low on memory, you don't have enough memory or something like that. So I I would quit the app, I would go into the multitasking bar, I would quit everything except the rock band app, go back in and be like, oh, you're fine. And so somehow it knows how much memory is free on the device. Now, whether or not that actually affected the operation of the app, I don't know, but it it was something that was visible to the user that the app was able to check for. I remember seeing that with We Rule back on the iPhone 3G, back in a previous life. And the the argument, the 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 reasoning behind that is the difference between active memory, inactive memory, free memory, and then there should be a fourth class which is Oh, system memory, and obviously, you know, no application is really going to touch anything with that. And applica- uh, memory can be left around for purposes of a- of applications returning for a period of time. That's why an application that goes into the background can come back instantly when you hit it, 
or when it basically shows its splash screen and has to completely reinitialize. That's 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 inactive memory that's being held around just in case the user comes back to it in a, in, and wants it back up in a hurry. But it and and it's so it's it's there for convenience, but not for activity, and that's why it's inactive memory. Ask Different has a couple a handful of questions with really good answers. Uh, a, a search for memory is probably enough, but if you search for something more specific, like if you're looking for it in a desktop context, if you look for inactive memory, then you'll, there's a there's a whole bunch of resources that are they'll be able to explain it much more than within the confines of this episode. I'd like to to take a crack at this. Um, <clears throat> so basically, the the iOS model for for software is the software has to be interruptible at any time, right? So I, as the user, get to press the home button, and that program better be ready to be suspended by the system. And so what the program can measure is how fast the system comes back to it, right? So for like a rock band game or some game where graphics is important, it can sample how fast am I getting the, the processor back. And it can also look at the virtual memory, um, so this kind of goes back to the digital pack rat, right? If you're the person that's, I'm done with this program and I, I know I want to free up my memory because I want to play this new game and have the memory free, you do want to go into the taskbar and kill out all those programs. Because if you don't do that, those programs, as long as they were running at one point, they're going to stay in memory until memory gets full. And then the system has to go back, okay, which program hasn't been used last and make a guess which of those old unused programs do we have to kick out of the memory? And basically, um, I think the technical term is jettison. So um, if you look in the diagnostics portion of your phone, you can see all these low memory events. And you can see literally the page allocation count of how much virtual memory was being used and what the system decided. It's going to keep these two active processes, and it's going to jettison these four other processes that were in memory. And, um, you know, for a, for a misbehaving program, it can take too much memory and it can actually get itself jettisoned. And that's really disruptive because then you go back to the home screen. So I think it comes back to, are you the kind of person that really doesn't want to have that interruption while the system figures out what to clean up? Or do you want to go clean it up so that this is, the system's free and doesn't have to manage that memory for you? Well, I think it's a combination of both where... Most of the time, I'm happy with the system managing it. But if I'm noticing a problem using try, trying to use an app, one of the things I will try is just clearing out that bar. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good thing to do when you know you're done with that that program to you know tell the the operating system absolutely get rid of all all trace of this program. We're done with it. Or especially if the program's misbehaving, sometimes you have to do that to get the program to actually boot itself up. Right. Rather than resume its saved state, which you know is in some bug or some corner not working right. Right. The other, the obvious other part of this conversation is the selection of apps that you actually use. Call me crazy, but I haven't, I have not installed a single game since I got my 4s. Um, call me boring, call me curmudgeon, all of which are probably true, but I don't have a single game on there. And like I said, since the 3G, I have, I, I am aware of that dialogue since you reminded me of it, but I have not seen it in well, years. You're a curmudgeon. I am. I am. I'm only saying that because you gave us permission to say it. It's okay. <laughs> the, uh, as a as an interesting aside, however, uh, there's an application that re- there's an app that really recently came out called Mashbox, which is like uh, 
I'm not even sure what to compare it to in the Windows world. It, it struck me very quickly as a Ableton Live style application. I think that's OS ten only. At any rate, I I was just kind of it's a it's a very hard to explain, but it uses skeuomorphism overdone. You know, it, it's not just pretty; it's actually analog, and it doesn't it, it has some quirks. Uh, but the point of the story is that it it killed like it something in there sent events so much uh, so many events that the system the the actual you know iOS underpinnings that are supposed to keep applications in check completely failed. I held the home button for five for five seconds or so nothing obviously tapping on the home button nothing holding the power button nothing. It is Whoa. the first yeah it is the first time I have ever. Re- forcibly restarted an iOS device by holding the home and the power buttons. I, I couldn't even. I don't even know specifically what triggered it. I had the. I had both songs playing. I might have had a sample or two playing, and I remember flicking the BPM dial a couple of times up to 200, which is its max. But at that point, nothing would respond anymore, and music kept playing. The samples kept looping, but uh, I couldn't get out of it. That was a. That, that was a pretty interesting time. Yeah, it's a bit scary when it, your phone just does not respond to anything. And if you had a like an older computer, your instinct would be to just pull the plug or pull the battery. <laughs> but it's not possible on an iPhone. That's that's why the only two hardware buttons on the iPhone are the power button and the home button because they can be wired to do that forcible restart. No, 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 no. Those are not hardware. Because are those not hardware buttons? The, the volume and the ringer switch are not are not hardware buttons. And that's why when you have your phone on silent, you can use Find My iPhone to still send the audible beacon. Because it doesn't matter if the volume is all the way down and it doesn't matter if it's on silent. There will still be noise in emergency situations. Well, I mean, I know that's software-based. But if, if the, if they're, the ringer they're switch, if the ringer switch was buttons. hardware, my, my point of a hardware button is that it cannot and will not do anything else. A hardware button is direct to the hardware doing something specific. But the ringer switch and the volume is purely software-driven. The only two hardware buttons are the power button, the sleep-wake button, uh, the power button, and the home button. Because those two can subvert the entire system. It can shut the entire thing down and, of course, DFU mode. Okay. Nothing else works like that. I, I kind of object to your classification of what a hardware button is but i will stipulate that those buttons are the only ones that can affect a device that is otherwise non-responsive Correct. okay all right our app of the week this week is skitch uh do you want to tell us a little bit about this uh, mike oh absolutely basically skitch is a um a uh, nice piece of software that um, is very small, very thin. It runs in the background, and it lets you take a, a capture of the screen, um, which is functionality that's built into the system. So generally, I don't, I don't like a, a program that does something that the system already does. But in this case, Skitch makes it really easy to edit that picture and then share it. It's been around for quite some time, and it is available on the Mac App Store. And uh, it is also free, so it's something that, you know, if it sounds good, definitely try this uh, this software out because if uh, you don't like it, you can just simply delete it. But um, for me, the, the three things it does really amazingly nice is the first thing is I can take a picture very quickly, crop it down to size, and it's got a little pull-down menu that lets me choose what format I'd like to have it exported in, 
whether it's PNG or JPEG or TIFF. And it's also drag and drop, which is really wonderful because, um, you know, if, say, a relative calls up and says, how do I do this on my Mac? My my network's bad, and I want to explain to them how to, you know, renew their DHCP lease. I can just take a few quick screenshots, draw a nice arrow pointing to the things that they have to click, and then uh, drag them right into an email. And so it's it's something, it's some software that I use quite regularly on the site to illustrate a, a key point, and um, I'd highly recommend anyone to, to check it out. Do you, you guys have any comments or experience with the software? I use it for, sometimes anyway, for Ask Different stuff, but I generally only bother with it if I am going to need some kind of an annotation, just because Grab is so much more accessible. I, I, I shouldn't say it's more accessible, but just the Shift-Command-4 space click on the window it's just so simple that I generally don't. I, I generally just don't even go through Sketch unless I need to do any kind of annotation or markup or anything. And that that's where Sketch is a huge time saver because opening something in Preview and adding annotations or anything like that or Photoshop even takes a lot longer. And I guess Sketch is to me less for sharing and more for just like I said the markup. But it definitely for for that task it is definitely the best tool that i found my top three uses of sketch annotations 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 and there there is something to be said every every application has drawing tools lines boxes circles but sketch is the only thing that makes things readable in two seconds because their their arrows scale with the length that you draw them their circles widen to a point i I guess i should say rings because they're not solid at least not by default very vivid colors very nice scaling Annotations that that is, that is Skitch's bread and butter, and they did it. They implemented it amazingly well, and it's exactly as you've said. It is so fast to be done with, and it looks it looks good. You know, you're not you're not going to lose the line because it's one pixel wide. You're going to find it because it's this vivid, outlined, descriptive thing. Is it possible to um, remap the screenshot keys to to go into Skitch instead? I think so. You can change sketch a shortcut and you can change the grab shortcuts so you could go like um command shift three and then it would take the entire screenshot of the desktop but then instead of putting it on the desktop it would just open up sketch with the screenshot i, I don't know if sketch has a full screen capture i haven't yes it does sketch sketch definitely has a full screen capture and um i'm not a hundred percent certain because i don't remap them but i'm fairly confident that sketch can intercept the system default commands so that those key commands that you're used to go to sketch yeah because uh what is it um one of those uh cla- i think it's cloud one of, it was one of those cloud apps um that will automatically um capture screenshots and then automatically upload them and put the url in your shortcut bar so all you need to do is just take a screenshot and then yeah uh, paste right yes that's cloudly and cloudly, um, right the the two of them i actually do use the two of them in conjunction. I like the sharing features of Cloudly much better than uh, Sketches, although Sketches is, have uh, they have changed them, uh, made them much nicer. And uh, the other thing that I would like to add about Sketch, actually two things, for preparing some kind of a professional report, um, it does have a feature where it lets you predefine the size of the box that you're capturing. So you can kind of get it right the first time, and you can take a, a standard size picture of your screen 
So if maybe you're doing a four or five page manual on how to set up server or something like that, it's it, it lets you get just a standard screenshot size so that your document looks really well. And uh, the other thing, it is very stable. Um, I hate to have software that's running all the time that you know either takes up too much memory or slows the machine down. So it's it's something that's been stable for quite a long time. So I like to give it a thumbs up for that as well. That's great. Yeah, I um, I typically use just the annotation features that are available in preview, but I'm frequently frustrated that they're not uh, as uh, comprehensive as I would like. And I think I, w- I will actually give Sketch a try because I do post screenshots fairly often uh, in, in questions and answers on Ask Different. So definitely useful for that. So, uh, Mike, how, how did you like being on the podcast? Um, it's a little nervous, uh, being recorded for the first time, but, um, I've very much enjoyed it. Well, we're very happy to have you on and you're welcome back anytime. Mm, thank you. <laughs> Do you have a, a Twitter handle or anything you'd like someone to follow you at? Um, I am Mike Bradshaw on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, uh, on my, uh, profile at Ask Different as well. So, um, feel free to, uh, to hit me up. There. There's a lot of stuff about Minnesota and, uh, very, uh, random sarcastic humor. So if you in in for that sort of thing, uh, you can uh, definitely follow me on Twitter. Sounds good. Uh, I'm I'm Kyle Cronin on Twitter, and this has been the Ask Different podcast. You can find us online at apple.blogoverflow.com. If you have any feedback or just anything you want to contact us about, you can contact us at podcast at askdifferent.net. You can also leave a comment on the blog post, the, the show notes for the show at apple.blogoverflow.com. You can find us on iTunes by searching for Ask Different Podcast. And if you w- if you could, we would love if you could just leave a rating or a review or something. Uh, we're looking to maybe get a, a little more visibility in iTunes. So if you could just let us know what you think there, that would be great as well. Thank you for listening.